This e-multiple sclerosis review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. And then there's the factor of medical mistrust, where some patients, um, particularly from certain racial and ethnic minorities, may have less care, less trust in medical care generally, whether as a result of personal experiences or historical accounts. Overcoming barriers to MS care. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Fear of the disease itself. Anxiety about potential DMT side effects. General distrust of the medical system. These are some of the key impediments preventing patients with MS from receiving optimum care. What should clinicians do to help their patients overcome these obstacles? To discuss that issue, we're joined today by Dr. Dorland Kimbrough, an assistant professor of neurology, multiple sclerosis, and neuroimmunology at the Duke University School of Medicine. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, emsreview.org, and select the Volume 5, Issue 4 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Kimbrough, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is a complicated but important topic, so let's move right into it with our first learning objective. Explain how a telemedicine session can enhance access to care for individuals unwilling or unable to travel to healthcare facilities. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Kimbrough, with a patient scenario. So let's consider Gabriel, who's a 28-year-old man with a two-year history of multiple sclerosis treated with an oral disease-modifying therapy since shortly after his diagnosis. Uh, on a Monday morning, you receive a forwarded secure message from Gabriel through his electronic medical chart explaining that he's had double vision and felt off balance during work for the past couple of days. You notice that his message was sent the prior Friday night, so two more days have passed uh, since he originally sent the message. And triage staff added a note that an on-call team member had spoken with the patient and advised him to go to a local emergency department, but Gabriel declined saying that he didn't want to spend all night in a local ED. Um, furthermore, he was concerned that unless it was a true emergency, um, that he might not really need to go there. So he lives two hours away from clinic. He's reluctant to take more time off of travel uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And this is the situation we find ourselves in. All right, before we discuss this patient, doctor, I want to focus for a moment on his reluctance to take time off work for a clinic visit. Have you found this to be a common situation? Yes, this problem happens pretty often, um, particularly with patients who have less flexibility in their work schedules. And oftentimes that can happen with uh, uh, low-income workers, and it doesn't uh, specifically track with um, racial or ethnic um, backgrounds, but certainly individuals um, who have less flexibility in their work life uh, tend to have more difficulty in making appointments or um, responding to emergencies by having to suddenly uh, go to the emergency department. Let's shift our focus back now to the patient you brought us. 28 years old, two years on an oral DMT, and now reporting troubling symptoms. What are your first thoughts about determining the differential diagnosis for a patient in this situation? Well, given that we have an established diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, my first thought is whether or not this is a multiple sclerosis relapse. Um, that's the, the main thing we want to try to distinguish here. Um, 
but also there are uh, situations referred to as pseudo-relapses where patients can have the re-emergence of prior symptoms in the context of a stressor. Some of those stressors can include uh, heat intolerance uh, or an infection, for example, and these are things that need to be considered as well. At the same time, we wanna be sure that we're not missing a new neurological issue. Um, so for example, depending on the patient's comorbidities, um, we would certainly not want to miss the possibility of a stroke or a hemorrhage or a migraine headache. Um, so those ought to be considered as well. And then lastly, uh, in some cases, depending on the treatment that a patient is on, you wanna be sure to consider uh, unusual complications or side effects uh, of treatment. Um, and these are things like progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or other opportunistic infections. A little bit less concerned about that for this particular individual, but that's always a good thing to have on your list as well. That's a pretty long list of potential suspects. You need to evaluate this patient before you can make an accurate differential. Of course you do, but he's reluctant to travel. How do you overcome that? So uh, slightly before my time in medical school, um, I recall uh, senior physicians telling me about the idea of house calls, but no one does that much these days. Um, so what we really need to find out is, uh, is there more information that can help us make a triage decision right now about the acuity of the situation? So um, we need to determine whether or not this patient needs to go to the emergency room or if they can wait and be seen in clinic. Uh, and if there's not a critical situation requiring an emergency department visit, then ultimately we still need to figure out a way for this patient to be examined. Well, he's not going to come to the clinic unless, and I'm going to quote him here, it's absolutely necessary. So, doctor, how do you determine what absolutely necessary means? So that is a great question. Uh, what determines necessity? So this, of course, requires some clinical judgment. Uh, we're really looking for what would cause morbidity or mortality for this patient and how likely are each of those potential scenarios um, to be the applicable one in this case. So we definitely need more information in terms of the history and examination and perhaps imaging down the line. Um, but ultimately, we're trying to determine if this is a situation that needs to be addressed in the time frame of hours versus, let's say, a day or two versus something that can wait longer with observation and expectation of either a spontaneous resolution or at least a, um, a safe period with which to follow up. Well, to get that information, you need some direct input from the patient. What's your best strategy to get it? So there's four options to consider here. Um, the patient can present to the emergency department as was initially advised, where emergency physicians or perhaps a neurology consultant can see the patient and get direct input, and then you can get feedback from those professionals about what's going on. You can also reply to the patient's initial message and then essentially have an exchange uh, via the uh, patient portal and different uh, messaging systems that may be secure through the, the electronic chart. Uh, you could do a simple phone call to see if you can get glean more information from that, or you could schedule a telemedicine visit and then have an opportunity to, to both speak with the patient and perhaps do a limited uh, examination through video. Let's take those options one by one if we can. Uh, first one, tell them again to go to the emergency department. So there are definitely circumstances where just from hearing the nature of the complaints, um, you may strongly advise that a patient present to an emergency department um, to get the fastest evaluation. 
Uh, however, in, in cases where the patient is reluctant to do that or, or can't do that without calling 911 and for whatever reason they aren't going to do that, um, you have to sort of find another way to get information um, as quickly as possible. Well, the second one you said, reply to his initial written message. So this can be too slow if uh, the matter is time sensitive, which we are assuming that it is. Uh, remember in Gabriel's case, we're already going on three days since his initial complaint uh, that was sent via the secure messaging system. So you'll have to wait for the patient to log on and see your reply. And then if the patient is physically and cognitively able to reply by then, then they have to get back to you. And, and that just becomes um, uh, not ideal as far as uh, uh, trying to communicate um, time-sensitive clinical information. Um, so email is not really the best medium for that. Okay, that makes sense. But why not just simply make a phone call? So you could make a phone call, and frankly, that happens quite often just to get a sense of what the patient's current status is. Um, however, you don't really good, good you don't really get examination information through that. Um, there are other ways to try to get more information, provided the patient is reluctant or unable to make it to a local facility and get examined in person. All right. So those other ways, that's got to be your last option, telemedicine face-to-face -face with a patient over a computer or a smartphone. Uh, play that scenario out for us, if you would, please. So for this particular scenario in a telemedicine visit, well, one, we have his background information. He has a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, uh, no other history of uh, other neurological conditions. Um, we're not concerned, uh, for that matter, that it's a stroke or a vascular event in this particular patient, um, knowing his history. But what a video visit allows you to do is to uh, do a limited examination, and we can see eye movements in that sort of um, uh, examination. And in this case, uh, we find that the patient has an internuclear ophthalmoplegia, uh, and that is uh, essentially convincing enough to explain some of his deficits and make us concerned that he may be in the midst of a multiple sclerosis relapse. Now, that said, uh, there still is more work to be done. Uh, and we need to uh, make arrangements to have um, uh, further evaluation, perhaps including imaging, perhaps involving IV steroids, and making sure we get him in for an in-person exam. But uh, the fact that you're able to work with the patient here and uh, do a real-time uh, uh, telemedicine visit and give them good feedback that's actionable enhances their confidence and trust uh, in the relationship. So. Um, Patients will often appreciate you working with them when they are in tight circumstances. For, ex for instance, this gentleman not being able to, or at least being reluctant to come in for an appointment um, and being able to get some feedback directly from the physician. Thank you, Dr. Kimbrough. Let's revisit our discussion now in light of our learning objective, explain how a telemedicine session can enhance access to care for individuals unwilling or unable to travel to healthcare facilities. What are the key things you'd want our learners to take away from our discussion? So when patients are having difficulty coming in person for evaluations, telemedicine increases access to care. And even though in-person exams are important and uh, very dear to practicing clinicians, the history and the extent of the exam that are obtainable via telemedicine uh, are often sufficient to make triage decisions and uh, reassure patients or advise them on the next steps that they need to take. 
And lastly, the face-to-face -face contact of a telemedicine interaction, as opposed to text or voice messages or emails, can help to engender trust and help strengthen the physician-patient relationship. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Dorlin Kimbrough from Duke in just a moment. It really is a very simple question. Your CME, CEU credits, have you got all that you need? Because they're still available without charge from eMultiple Sclerosis Review. It's the information you need to improve patient outcomes, combined with how that new information can be applied to clinical practice. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review delivers expert clinical advice and analysis. It's accredited for nurses as well as physicians, and all programs and credits are provided without charge. Find what you need at eMultipleSclerosisReview.org. Welcome back to our E-Multiple Sclerosis Review program. We've been speaking with Dr. Dorlin Kimbrough from the Department of Neurology, Multiple Sclerosis, and Neuroimmunology at Duke University School of Medicine about the value of telemedicine to improve access to care for any individual, regardless of race or ethnicity, who is unable to be seen in person. Let's turn now to our second learning objective. Describe how shared decision-making impacts the patient-physician relationship as well as adherence to treatment. So if you would please, Dr. Kimbrough, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. So this time, let's consider Lisa, who is a 34-year-old woman who was diagnosed with confirmed relapsing remaining multiple sclerosis three months ago after an episode of right optic neuritis, which led to MRIs and CSF lab results consistent with MS. In retrospect, she'd also had two other episodes of neurologic symptoms prior to diagnosis, but weren't considered to be part of this uh, scenario. Today, she joins you to establish care after her sister encouraged her to find a new neurologist. Knowing nothing about MS beyond its name and that it could be disabling, she was very afraid about the diagnosis and, and doubly fearful about side effects of treatment. She says that she felt rushed at her previous neurologist's office and was handed packs of promotional materials for different disease-modifying therapies with instructions to just pick one and come back after she'd decided. Lisa felt overwhelmed, and she was inclined to just focus on a healthy lifestyle without any disease-modifying therapy, but her sister encouraged her to have another go at subspecialty care for multiple sclerosis. So we have an understandably anxious individual here for a second opinion consult on a recent MS diagnosis. Now, there's a lot to unpack, but let's start with an overview. What's at stake here? So Lisa has experienced a, a delay in diagnosis and felt that she was essentially left to fend for herself when it came time to choose a disease-modifying therapy. So while at first glance, this is about a choice of disease-modifying therapy and mitigating the risk of relapse and possibly um, mitigating the risk of disease progression, the larger context is that this is a part of her early experience with multiple sclerosis care. So the implications are... Um, are huge. Um, number one, there's her confidence in her healthcare team. Uh, there are mental health implications in terms of anxiety or adjustment disorder um, when dealing with a new uh, diagnosis. And uh, she mentioned potentially being interested in, let's say, doing a healthy lifestyle as opposed to disease-modifying therapy, which certainly a healthy lifestyle is encouraged, 
but there may be an element of denial or aversion to grappling with the situation here. So putting all of these factors together, um, there's really an opportunity to try, to try to enhance the patient's understanding of the situation and thereby enhance her adherence to treatment. Furthermore, um, the patient's risk tolerance or risk aversion uh, can really be affected by her initial encounter. Um, the relationship with the healthcare provider is being built at this moment, and that's going to have an even larger uh, implication for the experience that she's going to share with her wider network of friends and family members. From what you related in your patient scenario, she was asked to select her choice of therapy based on primarily promotional materials. What do you make of the instructions to pick a treatment and return with your decision? So at face value, this sort of information may be useful in general, but it clearly needs a larger context. Uh, it's one thing to provide supplementary information after a thorough conversation and a Q&A session with the patient, but it can be really overwhelming without further context. There's also a, uh, an EQ component to this or an emotional quotient, so to speak. Um, how is the individual initially reacting to this information? And what's your read on how they're coping with the stress? Or you can just ask them. Um, at moments like this, you may see certain defense mechanisms come into play. Um, some people may uh, engage in what we call intellectualization, where there's a, a, a very deep drive to sort of get down into the nitty gritty of technical details and sort of the, um, the data surrounding the decision. Uh, some people may react more with denial or suppression, et cetera. Um, some people may want to cope with the stress by learning as much as they can about the situation, while others want to know as little as possible. And then there's the factor of medical mistrust, where some patients, um, particularly from certain racial and ethnic minorities, may have less care, less trust in medical care generally, whether as a result of personal experiences or historical accounts. So these factors influence the, the decision-making process about treatment. And that, I think, brings us to the idea of shared decision-making. It's been a much-discussed concept for at least the last couple of years. Uh, give us a working definition of shared decision-making, if you would, please, doctor. So as opposed to the idea of doctor's orders, where physicians simply instruct patients on what to do, or the opposite, where patients are virtually left alone to make a decision, uh, shared decision-making is a joint effort where both the patient uh, and their preferences and values are incorporated into decisions along with the relevant clinical context. There are decision aids for shared decision-making. What's your thought on those? Right, so there are six main ways in which decision aids have been shown to uh, in, enhance these sorts of situations. So one, it reduces anxiety and conflict. Two, it eases communication between healthcare providers and patients. Uh, it's shown to increase patients' knowledge about their situation. It increases their sense of self-efficacy and personal ownership in the decision. And it enhances trust and adherence. Uh, can you give us some examples of shared decision-making in determining this patient's MS treatment? So uh, when it comes to choosing a disease-modifying therapy, there's a balance between clinical and safety factors versus lifestyle factors. So for example, a patient will certainly want the most efficacious therapy that, uh, that they can um, have. At the same time, that has to be balanced against the risks of particular side effects that are either more likely to occur or things that 
an individual may feel is a deal breaker for them. There's also some practical and sort of lifestyle factors in this uh, regarding the administration route, where you have some patients that are very intolerant of, uh, let's say, uh, subcutaneous injections or IVs and would prefer an oral therapy. And there are some patients that would rather have the ease of having an IV therapy, which is essentially taken care of for them periodically, and they don't have to worry about remembering to take the therapy. Okay. DMT or lifestyle adjustment. What would you recommend for this patient we've been discussing? Although disease-modifying therapy is strongly recommended because of its demonstrable efficacy in clinical trials, this definitely does not preclude other lifestyle adjustments that patients want to make in terms of diet or exercise. So that's not an either-or scenario for the patient. Also, given the time constraints for clinicians and individual clinic visits, um, this uh, dialogue with shared decision-making can occur over multiple visits. What do we know about the effect of shared decision-making on adherence? Shared decision-making is generally associated with less conflict in deciding upon a treatment and improved adherence to treatment decisions. Why do you think that is? So that's simple psychology. Uh, people are more likely to adhere to behaviors that they had a part in developing. So that's the principle of ownership. Thank you, doctor, for bringing us this important information. Our learning objective is describe how shared decision-making impacts the patient-physician relationship as well as adherence to treatment. Dr. Kimbrough, what are the most important things our learners need to know? So major decisions about multiple sclerosis treatment, like starting or perhaps switching treatment, are really high-stakes scenarios for both the patient's clinical care and for their relationship with the physician. Providing information about treatment options is, of course, important, but the emotional and psychological components of the patient's response to the information is key in helping to facilitate a decision. Shared decision-making reduces anxiety and conflict, and it increases patient's sense of efficacy and ownership in decisions, and importantly, it enhances adherence. From the Duke University School of Medicine, Department of Neurology, Multiple Sclerosis, and Neuroimmunology, Dr. Dorland Kimbrough, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us in this e-multiple sclerosis review program. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. For e-multiple sclerosis review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at emultiplesclerosisreview.dkbmed.com. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. The Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.